This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. My name is Deborah Fitzgerald, and I am the editor of the Peninsula Pulse. And today I have as a guest in the podcast room in Bailey's Harbor, Representative Joel Kitchens. Joel represents District 1 in the Assembly, which covers Door County and some other communities that we'll talk about because maybe that has changed. But welcome, Joel. Well, thanks, Deb. Great to be here. Okay. So we're going to be talking about the session since it did just wrap last week. And that's for the rest of the year, right? Yeah, so we won't be back on the floor for the rest of the year unless there's something really unusual that we have to come back for a special session. Okay, and that's because of the election, right? Because there are elections this year, or is that yeah, always happen? Typically in the second year of a session, we wrap up earlier than in, you know, in the first year. Right, okay. Well, since we're talking about elections right off the bat, you're up for re-election yeah. in November. Okay, and that would be for your second term? Actually, Third my, term. <laughs> my fifth Fifth term. Oh, actually. your fifth term. Yeah, time okay. Flies. <laughs> All right. So, and it's every two years, right? right. For the assembly. Okay. Right. So that's why it goes by. It doesn't so seem like I've been there that long. But. Okay. So it would be your fifth term. And are you running for reelection? Yes, I am. That's the first time I've said that publicly. But, oh, uh, excellent. <laughs> but so yeah, you I will be heard running. it here first. Okay. <laughs> so you'll be running for reelection, and, and the election is in November. So that will be up and coming. But what I wanted to talk about was the assembly, the session overall. And and, you know, what you thought was accomplished, what you thought maybe you would like to have accomplished. I don't know if you can do that in a summary or not, but so what do you think about this? Well, it was a really strange session because we had the pandemic. I mean, when the session began, the vaccine hadn't quite come out yet. So that really changed things a lot. You know, all the federal money coming in. So the budget was really strange. And even when you look at the numbers of, you know, it's easy to look at the surface and say, wow, our economy is really booming. But a lot of that's artificial because we had so much federal money coming in and then people spent all that money. So our sales tax collections were the highest in history yes. and that kind of thing. So so it's it's just an odd, really odd session. And it's a hard, hard one to analyze, you know, as far as the economy goes, because it is so artificial. The other thing is in Wisconsin, we're one of the few states where the governor had complete control over all those federal funds coming in. So he was out spending a ton of money, spent a lot of it around here, which is great, but we didn't have any say in that. So a lot of, you know, a real important part of it, we were sort of out of the loop on. Mm -hmm. So that made it different too. So this is the American Rescue Plan Act funding. And it did have Governor Tony Evers had, you know, the full authority on how he wanted to spend that. And yes, there has been lots of grants that have been given to many different sectors. Right. And I understand that that funding is actually at risk now, that not as much is going to be coming to certain states and Wisconsin is one of those. But you said that Wisconsin is one of the only states that gives all of the authority to spending that money to the governor? Right, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I, I went to the, the National Conference of State Legislators and it was kind of weird to hear all my colleagues from other states talking about that where they were voting on how to spend it and stuff and we're just like, 
Yeah, we have yeah. no control over that. Right. You know, the governorship in Wisconsin really is one of the most powerful in the country. Mm-hmm. Not just that part of it, but the partial line item veto power that our governor has that other states mostly don't have. Mm-hmm. So our governorship has a lot of authority that other states don't. When the Assembly and the Senate are controlled by one party, the Republicans, and then you have a Democrat in the governor's office, isn't that a nice balance? To be able to, you know, veto things in specifically? I mean, there's some good to it. You know, you mm-hmm. don't get real extreme things happening. But, you know, I, I wish that the two parties could work better together. Mm-hmm. So it's frustrating at times, too, that, you know, some things that are pretty important, I think, don't get done. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want a lot of bills passed and a lot of things done, then then it's a good thing. But I just wish we could work together and compromise. You know, that was actually going to be one of my questions. Do you think that the legislature can ever work together, that the two parties can ever work together in Wisconsin? You know, I don't know. You know, we haven't worked together very well in my in my time there, certainly. And it does seem like it's gotten worse, the polarization. And that's I think that's a national thing, too. Although Wisconsin is kind of an extreme state where we, we tend to have you know, both the Republicans and the Democrats, we have the parties are dominated a lot by people that are pretty far to the left or to the right. I mean, all you have to do is look at our two U.S. senators. We have, you know, Ron Johnson, one of the most conservative senators, and then Tammy Baldwin, one of the most liberal. Mm-hmm. So I, I think Wisconsin, we're probably more polarized than most states. Hmm. So, I, you know, I would like to see us work together more, but... In the short term, I'd say it doesn't look very good for that. Mm -hmm. Now, I was away from Wisconsin. I just returned a couple of years ago, and it didn't feel as polarized when I lived here before. I left in 2008. So is this a new thing, this polarization in Wisconsin, or is it just, you know, part and parcel of what's happening in the rest of the country? Yeah, it's hard to say. You know, I wasn't around, obviously, before you know, before that, mm-hmm. I, I think looking back, though, it it's relatively new. When you look at Tommy Thompson's administration, mm-hmm. I think he was able to get a lot done and, and you know, because he worked with a Democratic legislature and he was still able to get a lot done. I think some of that was his personality. that He was just he knew how to get things done. OK, so you, we started off talking about some of the things, you know, just to summarize what the session was like. And you said it was, you know, definitely different, of course, because of covid, all of the federal money that, you know, was coming into the state. You've got, you know, a record surplus that, you know, needs to somehow be decided upon in terms of what you want to do with it. So what else about the session? I think one of the good things that's happened, I think the budget turned out well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm happy with that. There were things in there that we didn't know. It was difficult to know what to do. Uh, schools, for instance, a lot of federal money came in. Mm. So it was, you know, how much do we give to schools when knowing that they're getting billions of dollars in federal money and that kind of thing. But in the end, we were able to cut taxes. We ended up with a, you know, a big surplus. And, you know, I think overall we funded our priorities pretty well. Okay. And the budget really is the, the most important thing we do overall. So what didn't get accomplished that you wish got accomplished this past session? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think there were just a lot of areas. I'm drawing a blank as far as real specifics. You know, I would like us to do some things with schools and have it planned out a little bit better long term. But it's just, you know, you get so polarized and it's such a political thing that we don't reach compromise on those things. So the education committee is one that, are you the vice chair of yeah, that vice committee? Chair, okay. Right. So of the number of bills that you actually started over this past session, would you say that, well, where were they mostly concentrated? Yeah. You know, one of the frustrating things about 
the education committee is that people put things in there just to kind of score points sometimes. Mm. So some of the stuff that we deal with, you know, we know that when we pass it, the governor's never going to sign it. And so you, you have a lot of that kind of, you know, garbage really. So again, it, it's been sort of a frustrating committee to deal with. We don't reach a lot of compromise in that committee. Is that an opportunity to compromise? Like if you know that the governor is going to veto it, like so much of like the the package of gun laws, that seems like one good example, or the election law package that would automatically be vetoed by the governor. Is that an opportunity then to compromise? Like, is that where, all right, we know that the governor would never pass this, so why are we even passing it? Well, I mean, both parties do that, right? The the Democrats in the legislature, they constantly put out bills that they know we're never going to pass. So it's sort of stating your positions. So to a certain extent, that's our job. You know, Mm -hmm. we have to, people have to understand what we would do if we were in charge, right? So again, I wish we could sit down and talk. I don't want to blame either party 100%. It's it's both that aren't working together. But I do wish Governor Evers would meet with our leaders. They have offered it hundreds of times that, you know, under Governor Walker, every week, the leaders in the Assembly and in the Senate would sit down and have a talk with him and just say, hey, what things can we agree on? What can't we agree on? And they've offered that over and over. And they virtually have never met face to face. I think, you know, Robin Voss has told me, our speaker has told me, he can count on one hand the number of times he's had face-to-face conversations with Governor Evers. So that's not a good thing. No. You know, I wish they would talk because I think you could find areas that we could agree on. I certainly think we could if, if we would talk, but they don't talk. So if we were to, let's talk about a couple of things that have recently happened. The Supreme Court selected the governor's maps. And do you have any idea right now, like what that means for your district or, you know, for districts in general? Yeah. Well, for my district, it means very, very little. I think mine's the toughest district in the state to gerrymander, right? Because a peninsula, you know, so, Mm -hmm. so I have Door County, all of Door County, all of Kewanee County, the Northern part of Brown County, and I have one little township in Manitowoc County. So under the governor's map, it stays exactly the same. Under the Republican map, I would have gotten rid of that little township in Manitowoc County. So for me, it makes no difference, essentially. Okay. You know, statewide, it makes a difference in some areas. I mean, people should not, you know, they blame the Republicans a lot for gerrymandering. They should by no means feel like this is not a gerrymandered map that the governor put out, too. You can see numerous cases where they deliberately brought a street in to get in one of their candidates, or they excluded a tiny little area to get rid of somebody, a sitting legislator. There are several of those around the state where they did that, or where they put two Republicans together in the same district. They didn't do that to any Democrats. So it's pretty gerrymandered, too. I was surprised, I guess, by the decision. Justice Hagedorn, his logic seems a little strange to me, but, you know, it's being challenged to the U.S. Supreme Court. It probably will stand up. Mm. I mean, it's unlikely they're going to take that on, but we will see. There are a lot of Democrats, particularly minorities, that are not at all happy with it, the way that they treated the minorities in, in the Milwaukee area. So a lot of them have spoken up that they don't like these maps at all either, but it's probably what we're going to be dealing with. Sure. And I think that that was the point all along for people who are pushing for fair maps, is that it's not just a Republican thing. It is given the opportunity, then Democrats will, you know, do what they can to make it favor their party as well. So that's why fair map legislation or a different way, a different process of doing this is what, you know, they advocate for. Do you think that that is in uh, Wisconsin's future? You know, I've supported it since I've been in there, as far as if we did it really right, I think there's a way you could do it and make it less political. So mm-hmm. I would support it if we do it right. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be tough. You know, both parties, when they have the opportunity, I mean, the Democrats, can, you know, obviously 
you know, blame us right now for not taking on nonpartisan redistricting. But prior to 2010, they controlled all levels of government, and the Republicans were the ones pushing for a nonpartisan redistricting plan, and they wanted nothing to do with it then. So mm-hmm. whichever party's in power, they tend to not want to give that power up. It's kind of short-sighted because they're thinking, obviously, it's going to swing back and forth. Right. You know, but, and I understand that people are, are leery of it, that sometimes our experience with trying to create nonpartisan boards haven't worked very well because everyone is partisan to some level, you know. Mm-hmm. So I would support it if we could do it right. Okay. But it'll be, a, it'll be tough to get done. Okay. And so what we were talking about is the Supreme Court selected one of the six maps that it was looking at. And those will be the districts that we go with for the next 10 years until the next census. So I also wanted to get your thoughts on the voting packages of bills. Most of them have been vetoed by the governor, but there was the Gableman report that recently came out. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, as far as the report that came out from him, I think most all of the things in that were things that you know, the Legislative Audit Bureau had recommended those things. I mean, you know, no matter which side of the aisle you sit on, I think some of those things you could look at and say, yeah, that should be done differently. And that's what the Audit Bureau, that's a nonpartisan bureau, and they said the same thing. There were there are a number of areas that I think we do need to change. But that's not to say there's a big conspiracy and all that. I'm not going to go into that. Mm-hmm. So I think most of the things that came out of the Gableman report, I think, make sense as far as dealing with, you know, how nursing homes are handled, how indefinitely confined people are handled, all of those kinds of things. Now, where he went off the rails, in my opinion, was him saying that we should decertify the election. Okay. And that was not in the original report that he put out. But then when he testified, he brought that up, and that got all the headlines. So every paper across the state was like, Gableman wants to decertify the election. Mm -hmm. He seemed to indicate that he thought we could do that. Every credible legal scholar that I know of has said, we do not have that authority and even if we did, would you want to go down that path and have whichever parties in power decide who they want to give the electoral votes to? Would you? No, I would not want that to. You know, I would. Okay. Yeah, I would not want that to be the case where it was always up to the legislature because we're not always going to be in power, and mm-hmm. you know, and I think it would totally erode people's faith in in voting if they just felt like, well, why should I bother if legislature is just going to pick who they want anyway? You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, as far as it, it's unfortunate that the actual meat of that report got so little attention, and all that got attention was decertifying the election. Right. But, I mean, just as the audit didn't, you know, turned up a number of things that could be adjusted, it still didn't speak to the... The issue was that, you know, let's let's see if the election was actually valid. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that has been produced by either one of these reports that indicates that it was not. So at what point do you just stop this and just let it go? Yeah. I mean, personally, I, th- I think we need to, to move on and just, you know, I, I want to change those things moving forward and restore people's faith that there are people out there. I hear from a lot of them that don't have much faith. So I want to fix those things. That don't have faith in our Electoral voting process. system? Okay. Right. Yeah. So I, I hear from a lot of people like that. So I do want to restore that faith. As far as revisiting the last election, it's done, though. I mean, we're not, mm-hmm. it's not going to change. And I, I think what, you know, I, I saw William Barr, the former attorney general, has a book out now, and I've just read some excerpts from it. But, and he had always been a very, very loyal Trump supporter. But, you know, he said, too, that what we have found is we find, found a lot of places where election laws were violated. And we have them in Wisconsin where they were violated. But that's not the same as proving there was actual fraud. So, for instance, the indefinitely confined thing, 
the Dane County clerk was telling people, oh, if you're uncomfortable with COVID, you can just say you're indefinitely confined and then you don't have to show an ID. You can just mail in your ballot. Mm -hmm. That was wrong. That was against the law, what they, that clerk telling people to do that. So a whole, you know, thousands of ballots came in and people said, hey, I'm indefinitely confined. We're not going to throw those ballots out, though. The judges mm -hmm. have all said we're not going to throw them out, even though, yes, those people weren't really indefinitely confined. And neither would they make a difference. Well, they wouldn't have tilted. Well, if you threw them all out, it would make mm -hmm. a difference. But there's no proof that any of those votes were fraudulent, right? That any of those people that voted that way wouldn't have voted normally, you know, wouldn't have voted the same way. There's no proof that anybody voted twice, that th those weren't real people. So, you know, having the opportunity to cheat is not the same thing as proving that cheating actually happened is, mm -hmm. is the bottom line. And the contextual circumstances are important, too. I mean, a lot of these things that were done was because of COVID. And they were right. trying to battle, you know, uh, making it safe, making people feel as safe as possible to still be able to cast their votes. So contextually speaking, you know, if we had never had to deal with this before, we had never had to carry on elections with a pandemic. So contextually, I think that, you know, there should have been some leeway there too. Yeah, it's hard to say on some of that. I mean, I, I agree. A lot of things happened that would never have happened and you know, likely won't happen again in the future. Mm -hmm. The other argument would be that, well, it gave people an easy ability to, you know, to uh, circumvent the rules, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, I do think we, though we, there are several of those items in there that we should look at and we should change the law. Now, under Governor Evers, it's unfortunate. It all gets thrown together and they always act like, oh, the, the Republicans just want to suppress the vote. Mm. I think there are things, the money that came in that Zuckerberg contributed around the state, you know, I think anybody could look at it and say we shouldn't have a partisan person being involved in running elections, I would think. I mean, I don't think Democrats would like it if, if the Koch brothers were involved in running the elections. So I think we should be all, all be able to look at that and say, yeah, that should not be done by – partisan groups should not have that kind of involvement in elections. What do you mean by running the elections? Okay, well, that, okay, that's, that's fair. Yeah. Um, well, you know, in Brown County in particular, though, the representative who was a Democratic partisan, I mean, that was his background. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was given, given access to the absentee ballots and everything else. He had the keys to the kingdom, basically. In a lot of places, it was done for get-out-the-vote purposes. But then again, is that the role of government to be out there, you know, trying to drum up the vote? It certainly isn't, I don't think, the role of the government to be involved with a partisan group. But I think Brown County was the place where, I mean, the clerk in Brown County resigned because she was not comfortable with the access that this person was given. Now, that's, again, there's no proof that any fraud happened. Right. But it certainly, it looked bad and it created an opportunity where the person potentially could have, you know, cheated. Most of the Zuckerberg influence was financial. And the Coach brothers as well their influence is financial. So this differs, it seems to me anyway, only in that it was a little bit more obvious of, you know, what was actually being funded. So well, I think isn't that big, the difference? No, I think there's a big difference. The, the Koch brothers have never been involved in with the government in running. Sure, they contribute to different causes and that kind of thing. And that's expected, you know, just like Zuckerberg does. But they have never been involved with the local governments in running an election. I think it's a big difference when you have, when they're contributing to a government and funding the duties that the government should be funding. Mm. All right. So now if we go on to, you had indicated that you are running for re-election. And so I always want to ask this question of, of somebody, why are you a Republican? 
Okay. You know, the reason I'm a Republican, and there's certain, and, and I get asked that a lot, there are certainly areas where I've disagreed with my party, you know, and my record would show that I've voted against my party at times. But I think the basic philosophy of the Republican Party is that we believe in, in personal responsibility. We believe in, you know, helping people to reach their full potential, but we're not going to guarantee it. Whereas I think the Democrats, you know, and I hear the debates all, you know, on the floor, they treat everyone as though they're sort of, it's not really your fault if you fail. So we need to help you, you know, we need to prop you up. It's like, I feel like the Republicans, if you fall down, we're going to lift you up, but we're not going to carry you. I think there's a real difference with that whole personal responsibility aspect of the two parties. And I think we believe more strongly in the free enterprise system. You know, in, if we allow businesses to succeed and don't put too many government restrictions on them, they will succeed and people will reach their full potential. So I think there's a real fundamental difference between the parties, even though I, I don't always agree with the direction it goes with our party. That basic philosophy is why I'm a Republican. Okay. And so what directions would you, can you give us an example of the directions that you don't always agree with your party in? Yeah, I think some of the social things, I'm not a super strong social conservative, I guess. I'm more of a libertarian where I think that we should just stay out of people's lives. Mm. So I, I think that's probably an area where I don't always agree with them. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kewanee counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org careers. Let's talk about some of the things for Door County, some of the things that you've been working on or you worked on over this past session. Do you want to talk about some of those? Well, what springs immediately to my mind is Potawatomi. Sure. Um, the tower, because since I've been back, I've been following that and covering it. Where it is right now is the Department of Natural Resources held a comment period and took a, a number of comments that closed in February. So I guess they're compiling those comments now on what to do with the tower? I guess so. It's really difficult to know what their real plan is. I think that they determined, you know, they have a lot of these towers and other buildings around the state that are older. And I think I think that they have a, a policy. They just want to get rid of them all. They don't want to be responsible for them anymore. Mm. So they just want to tear them all down. Now, they don't come out and say that, you know, and, sure. and they, they certainly have not in right. this case. Yeah. And, and with Potawatomi tower, it was the first tower that was built for tourism in the state. You know, all the towers prior to that had been, you know, fire towers. So I think it, you know, historically it really was a turning point where tourism became an industry, you know, 150 years ago, whenever it wasn't really an industry, you know, mm -hmm. it, and now it is, and, it, and it's, a, it's a huge deal. And it's listed on the both the state and national historic registers. Right, and how many towers in the state are, you know, listed on that? Yeah, I, none. none. Right. So, so I think it is really a significant tower. Mm -hmm. But they they seem to be fighting all along the way. They, they go from one argument to another. As soon as you disprove one of their arguments, they hop to another one. You disprove that, they hop back to the other one, you know. It's just been constant. And I know as a journalist you try to be impartial, but I think – I, I know you have seen, too, that they've been disingenuous in dealing with us on this. Yeah. So, you know, we're still fighting it. We're not mm -hmm. going to let them get off that easy. We, you know, the they said that it, it was beyond repair, couldn't be repaired, so they, it would have to be rebuilt, and then it would violate the Americans with Disabilities Act. Well, 
the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society, you know, had an engineer who showed him a plan that has been used all over the place. It's being used on Washington Island to repair their tower. Right. And after reviewing it and having their engineers review it for a few months, they agreed and said, yeah, it can be repaired. But yet they still, then they go on, they still say, well, it still needs to be completely 100%, you know, handicap accessible, which is not true. Mm-hmm. If it's repair, it doesn't have to be, especially a historic structure like that. So mm. I, I support the Americans with Disability Act, but they're misinterpreting it because when you repair a historic structure in particular, that does not mean that it has to be 100% you know, handicap accessible. And, and, you know, and you and I have talked, and I think the one example I used is when they, you know, they did repairs on the Wisconsin State Capitol where I work. I mean, Disabled people cannot go up to the very top of that. You have to, you know, climb, you know, little staircases and all that to get up there. They can't get there. Mm-hmm. But nobody suggested that, oh, we should just tear down the tower then because they can't get there. That's not what the ADA says. And they're, they're using that as an excuse to tear the tower down. How confident are you that they're actually going to change course and do something with this tower? Oh, boy. If they do, it'll be because they are absolutely forced to. You know, I, I think that... Honestly, the bottom line for me is, you know, I don't believe that Governor Evers really is very aware of what's going on, not to be critical, but his management style is a little bit more hands-off than you saw with, like, Governor Walker. So my guess is that he doesn't know very much about this. But those departments work for him. He's the guy that is responsible for this. And I think that if people let him know that we are holding you responsible for this, then I think it's more likely to, to get saved. And I think the reason we've gone as far as we have is because they recognize that. Mm. I don't think they want to tear this thing down in an election year and have him be held responsible for it. Mm. So, I mean, if you're, you could argue that maybe they're just stalling until after the election, then they're going to tear it down. I don't know. But Mm. I think if we're going to save it, it's going to be because of that political pressure on him that he doesn't want to be the guy to tear it down. Okay. Well, that certainly sounded like with the comment period that they were suddenly taking a different you know, path. Yeah. You know, when they admitted basically that 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 report from that engineer, that it could work, that it could be repaired, I thought at that point, okay, yeah, we're making progress. We're going to get it done. But then they just go back to the same old garbage. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think the comment period, like you said, it would overwhelmingly people in Door County want to save the tower. Yeah. And so I'm not sure what their their game is on that, on even doing the comments. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not quite sure what the strategy is for them. Well, maybe the election year is part of it. So. It could be. And maybe it's just All stalling. All legislators are the best, you know, during an election year, as they say. But yeah. So more recently, you drafted legislation that, was that passed by the governor? The Gibraltar TIF district. Um, uh, yeah, the Senate passed it this week. Okay. So it's it's going to the governor now. Okay. I, I would assume that the governor will sign that. There should be no reason he wouldn't. Mm-hmm. It passed both houses overwhelmingly. I don't know that there was any real opposition to it. Right. So, you know, in the end, we were able to get that done. And, you know, my philosophy has always been on those local projects. If the local government passes it, they're the representatives of that area. You know, I'm going to help them out as much as I can. You know, okay. I'm, so so if, if the people of Gibraltar, you know, if their officials want to get that done, then I'll I'll help them. I do obviously workforce housing is a huge issue all over the state, but I think Northern Door, it's particularly acute with the, you know, with the competition from Airbnbs and from all the the uh, people that have seasonal homes and all that. It's just really difficult for people. And it's not just, it's not just lower income people. I know, you know, Gibraltar schools, it's really hard for them to recruit teachers because mm-hmm. an awful lot of them end up living in Sturgeon Bay. It's, you know, to get 
something close to affordable. Right. And what we're talking about is a tax increment financing district. And the town of Gibraltar was not able to do one on its own. Like, for instance, the city of Sturgeon Bay uses it as an economic tool very often. They're on their sixth, actually. And villages are able to use them too. But if you want, if you're a town in Wisconsin and you want one and you don't have those two criteria that you need, then you need to get permission from the legislature. Yeah, and thanks for going back and explaining that. I jump ahead yeah, and act yeah. as though everybody knows all this. That but. was my job, Joel, and I <laughs> fell down on that. So I needed to actually just set it up right. So we just kind of backtracked on that. And then another thing that has gained some traction here was some legislation pertaining to shoreline and how you actually designate shorelines. There was a bill in the Senate and the Assembly they passed on voice vote and presumably are going to the governor. Mm-hmm. And so what these bills would do, what this legislation would do, is enable a municipality or a title owner of some property that's on fill to appeal to a municipality and say, hey, we really want to be able to develop or do something with this land that has been filled forever, but it's below the ordinary high water mark. Can you draw a different line? And then the municipality looks at some criteria, determines whether or not that's a good thing, says, yes, okay, we'll, we'll do that. And then the DNR comes in and says, okay, that's the new line. So right now it's only the DNR that can, you know, say whether or not it's you can do anything with it. This legislation would put that process in place and it has a lot of environmental groups upset because that is the public trust doctrine that those lands below the ordinary high water mark belong to the people of Wisconsin. And this is basically just ripping that constitutional right away from them. So what do you think about this legislation? Well, you yeah, sponsored it. I, I mean, you you passed it out of your environmental committee, yeah. which you chair. Yep. So yeah, and that's, this is it's such a complicated issue. We it could, really is. We could spend the whole I podcast know. very very easily on just this issue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the lakeshore all up and down is all the, there's a lot of land that's on filled property that was done either legally or illegally over the over the years. So this is looking back to 1970. Two, I believe. Yeah, 1977. 77, right? okay, yes. you're right. You're December right. 1977, prior to that. Yeah, so the, the bill would say that prior to that, if it's been filled prior to that, then there are these criteria where a, a municipality could, that land could be developed. One of the problems right now is that nobody knows exactly where that original ordinary high watermark is. In the case in Sturgeon Bay with that granary property, during the course of all that litigation, the DNR changed their mind five times on where they thought the high watermark was. So the reality is that nobody can develop those properties because, you know, what? who's going to buy that and, and invest in it knowing that if somebody challenges it, they could easily tell you you can't do anything with it. Right. And, and it was more, just to interrupt real quickly, not the granary project, so per se it was the hotel. Right. It, no, yeah, I just it was right. a granary property basically, but it was, it was for yes. the hotel, right? So, so what happened, let me just set this up okay. so we're not always going back, is that there was a the city was going to sell this land to a developer who was going to build a hotel. And then a group of the friends of the Surgeon Bay waterfront sued mm-hmm. in order to be able said, this land is not available. It's 
public trust doctrine land. Therefore, it belongs to all the people, so you don't have title to it to be able to sell it to the developer. Well, the courts did decide in favor of the Friends, and during that process, the DNR had to determine where the ordinary high watermark was. And as you indicated, it moved a couple of times. Yeah. So if you're using it for a public purpose, if you make a park out of it, then it's not an issue. You can do that. Mm -hmm. That's allowed right now. The problem is that, and I'll use Racine as an example, they have blocks and blocks of land that was filled along the lakeshore. And they right now, it's blighted land, a lot of it's old industrial property. They can't do anything with that because nobody, you can't turn it all into a park. No, no city has the, the money to turn their whole lakeshore into a park. But you can't, no developer is going to want to you know, be part of it, knowing that he can get sued, it could be shut down. Ideally, what you do is you would have, you develop it all, have some of it be private developments, but have public access to all of it, have some parks in there and all that. So that would be, to me, the ideal situation. It's not a good situation right now where that land, I mean, imagine what a tremendous economic development opportunity that would be for Racine to be able to develop that property and put, you know, have some of it be parks, have some of it be, you know, convention center or whatever. Tremendous opportunity there, but right now nothing happens. So I think clearly something needs to be done. We can't go on the way we are right now. Mm -hmm. When that bill came to my committee, I thought it needed a lot of work. So Senator Coles and I, he's the environment chair in the Senate, we worked together with the authors and put an amendment on it with a lot of things in it. To me, the most important part of that amendment was saying it has to have public access. Whatever you do, you have to allow the public to have access to that waterfront. But when you were putting the amendment together, the amendment added more public access language. Right. Okay. So, yeah, so that was the big thing for me. There is another part of that bill that was already there that whenever a municipality de determines that that property can be sold, there has to be a public benefit to that. And, you know, that's an area where they potentially could still be sued. I mean, if if you sold a property and there was no public benefit that came from that, those groups can still sue them and say, hey, you're you're breaking the, the public trust doctrine here. So that is an element of, of it already that whatever is done, you have to have public access and it has to be have an overall benefit to the public. So I think the bill where it stands right now, it's a pretty good compromise. You know, to just stick strictly with the public trust doctrine as it's interpreted right now, it's just not good for the future of our state. And in the end, the bills passed through both houses on a voice vote, mm. which basically means that there were people in both parties that, I mean, it was supported by people in both parties and there were Democrats that, while they may disagree with some parts of it, they didn't want to take that vote against it because mm -hmm. they knew what it would do to their communities if you could never develop that property. Sure. So and I have a story on this week's Pulse, and what was interesting about this particular issue to me was that there was, yes, the environmental groups were definitely, you know, not for this particular bill and wanted, you know, to see changes, but nobody said that we don't see why this is a problem. Right. Even the DNR. You yeah. know, they don't want to be the people that, you yeah. know, are deciding how to figure out what these lines are. Yeah. But I think overall the DNR is actually supportive of this bill. That's what it sounded like to me in their testimony. Yeah, because they don't want to be in the position of having to draw those lines that are impossible to draw. You can't go back to 1850 and know exactly where the water was mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So I think the D DNR does not want to. And even the environmental groups primarily, they registered as being opposed to it but they didn't fight it. Mm. Not a single one of them came into my office as chair of the committee. Normally that would happen. They would come in and say, hey, don't give this a hearing or whatever. Okay. Nobody came in and said that. So, and especially after it was amended, I had some of the people, representatives from those groups 
kind of thank us for doing that, for making it stronger, the language about, you know, public access and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's not a black and white issue where, oh, because you're a Democrat, you're opposed to it. And because you're a Republican, you're in favor of it. You know, I think it's an issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah, it's one of the few that is not black and white that way. <laughs> um, so it was really kind of interesting to me to cover it. What else did you want to talk about, about the session? Anything else? Well, I think that one of the, you know, I, I actually got a lot done, you know, as far as number of bills that I got passed okay. and that kind of thing. But I think that probably the most important one was there's a nitrate bill that the Senate just passed it the other day. I won't get into the details of it, but obviously nitrates in groundwater is a, is a big issue, not just here. Actually, there are other parts of the state that have a bigger problem with that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's in drinking water and it has, you know, detrimental health effects and that kind of thing. Yes. So Senator Coles and I, again, we wrote this bill that encompasses a number of different areas, but you know, it was a bill that had really strong support from all of the farm groups, but also the conservation groups were also very supportive of it. Mm. And that's what, that's always been my approach on these conservation issues. And we've had a number of victories like that, that get the two sides together because the farm groups, at least the progressive farmers certainly realize that we have to do things differently. Just the old way style of farming, we're not going to be sustainable if we do that. You know, we're, we're going to get regulated out of existence if we just insist that we have to do things the old way. So they want help in finding new ways to do things. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those things where we're giving them some help and they're at the, they have a seat at the table. You know, they know farming better than anybody else does. So they, it's easier for them to institute, you know, changes in, in the way they do things if we, if we allow that. Mm-hmm. So that's what this is sort of all about. It's that same approach to bring the two sides together. You know, let's let the farmers find new ways to do things. And again, we had the support of all the conservation groups as well as all the, the agricultural groups. So what does this nitrate bill actually do? Well, one of the big parts of it is it sets up a grant program. Nitrates are, are very complicated as far as how they get into the groundwater and, and how we regulate against that. It, it, there's so many variables. It's the type of soil, the depth of soil, the type of crop you have. Um, and it's not just manure we think of around here, but actually commercial fertilizer is a bigger problem with going through the groundwater. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, initially the governor had put in the into the rules process, we're going to come up with, with standards around the state for nitrates in the groundwater. We're going to make these rules. Well, they, they eventually disbanded that effort because we don't know enough to just set strict rules right now because there are all these variables that go into it. So this grant program would allow people to try out different things and get a grant. And then that'll be part of going forward. We'll have that knowledge as to how to prevent the nitrates from getting into the groundwater. You know, we don't want to write standards and, and, you know, and put fines in place if we don't know how they're going to achieve those, you know, so this will help with that. It also, it creates a state hydrologist position that will, one of their big goals is going to be to map the whole state as far as the depth of soil, the the type of soil and that kind of thing, because that's, information we have to have if we're going to prevent nitrate contamination. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's another part of it. So we don't know right now. Are there times of the year, for instance, when you can spread manure in Wisconsin? Are there times of the year when you can apply, you know, commercial fertilizers? Do we know enough to be able to regulate, you know, nitrates that way? We know a certain amount, you know, preventing bacteria from getting into the groundwater, and that's through manure. That's much easier. It's a pretty straightforward thing. We know that yeah, ideally, you know, you don't spread, you don't want manure there in the spring when the snow melts and all that, because mm-hmm. it's going to go right down into the groundwater. So we know an awful lot about that. And and that's a much more straightforward thing. With nitrates, it's just way more difficult. So, yeah, that's what, we, you know, there's certain, there are certain things we know, mm-hmm. but this grant program, I think, is going to help. I had a nitrate work 
group a couple of years ago. And Wisconsin's blessed with academically some of the real experts around the world on this issue. And they were all part of that work group. And this was one of the things they really wanted was, you know, how to come up with these standards, how to come up with these practices that we can, at some point, maybe they need to be part of the law. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll just be done voluntarily. But in any case, we need to, we need this information okay. if we're, if we're going to really prevent it. So then the grants would enable them to, you know, come up with plans for fertilizer application right. or cover crops or things right. of that nature. Yeah. And that's the other, yeah. So they would, they would write a proposal to, you know, we're going to try this out in this area, and then we, they would have grant money to cover the additional expense. Another part of the bill, though, I should have pointed out is that cover crops are probably, well, one of the most important things that a farmer can do to prevent groundwater contamination. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look around our area, you'll see a lot more. In the winter, you used to see all the bare fields, right? And that's a terrible thing because mm-hmm. you lose soil, and then when you, as you do it and the soil gets damaged, it makes it easier for contaminants to go through into the groundwater. Mm-hmm. If you put a cover crop on that it stays there over the winter, keeps the soil in place, you get much healthier soil. And healthy soil does its job for filtrating. Mm-hmm. So that's what we really want. So one of the parts of this bill was to put a, a cover crop rebate program for crop insurance. So it, you know, so it makes it much more desirable for farmers. It makes it easier for them to put cover crops in place mm-hmm. if they get some help on the insurance that if it fails, they can get some money back for it. Because right. even planting those, there's a lot we don't know. If the winter is milder, if it's more severe, that makes a difference on what works. It's not just as simple as, oh, you throw seed out there and it's going to take care of itself. Some things work one year, they don't work the next. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot we still need to learn about that too. Okay. So it covers some of the risk, helps them cover right. some of the risk to be able to take some of those, uh, to try some things. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's what we want to do. We want to empower them to to do these practices. And that's one where everybody agrees that really, really works. Okay. Now, so you have a, it looks to me like you have a list there of some of the, um, <laughs> so what number of bills of yours passed this year? Do you have like a raw number in your head on that? Yeah, I think there were seven that, a couple of them the governor hasn't signed, but I'm confident like the things like the TID bill for Gibraltar that, okay. He will sign that. I'm very sure he will. So okay. I think in the end, it'll be seven bills that I had that were signed into law. Okay. So, and then there were a number of them that you know made it through both houses or made it through one house, our house, and didn't make it through the Senate. There were a couple that got vetoed after they were passed through. So, I mean, for me, really, it was a pretty productive session as far as, you know, things I was able to get done. Okay. Is there a subject area where most of those bills were concentrated or are they all over the place? They're somewhat all over the place. Some of them were, you know, because of things happening, particularly in our area. Mm-hmm. There was the one about newspapers that, yes. th- that did affect the pulse that, you know, that was because of an issue in our area. There was one dealing with condos that's because of an issue in our area. But, you know, my primary areas of focus, I guess, overall have been, you know, I'm chairman of environment. I'm vice chair of education. I have a lot of background in those two areas. So those are the areas where I am most active. But mm-hmm. I do things all over the place. Yeah, sure. Let's talk about the one, the newspaper bill. Can you describe that one to our listeners? Sure. (laughs) So traditionally, there were rules, a law in place, basically, that in order to print public notices, which all of our municipalities, when they have a meeting, they're required by law to put it in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. But in order to accept that advertising in a newspaper, you have to have, there's several requirements. One of them being it has to be a paid newspaper. And by that, we mean that you have to put your buck down or buck down. Yeah, a paid down. subscription. So yep. like if you get the Press Gazette, you have to buy a subscription. Mm-hmm. Now, the newspaper industry, as you know mm-hmm. better than most anybody, is really struggling because with the advent of the internet and all that kind of thing, 
people don't subscribe as much anymore. So The Pulse is one of the papers around the, the state in the country that have taken a different approach where you have a free subscription and then you still make your money on advertising and by providing high quality material in there, everybody reads it so the, so people are anxious to buy advertising in there. So hopefully I explained your business model Yeah, better. well, you know, I mean, no newspaper has ever made money on subscription rates, you know? So that's the, the big fallacy right from the start, okay. you know? Okay, well, that's, yeah, good to know. Yeah. But, and the reason they had that in place is they didn't want it to be just these, these shoppers that were like the door reminder or whatever where, you know, you, you put them in people's mailboxes and it has coupons and nobody really reads them. Mm-hmm. So they didn't want municipalities to be able to put them into those shoppers like that. So that was the... the rationale behind that law. But as the newspaper industry has changed, we need to change with it. So the bottom line is that with this bill, if you meet some other criteria and you have, you know, a certain area, you you have a certain number of copies that you put out and all that kind of thing. Plus the big one is that it has to be a newspaper. It has to be, there's a requirement that most of it has to be news. It can't just be, again, coupons going out there. Right. That if you do, if you meet those other criteria, then you can, you can accept those advertisements, the, the notices. And it's not just, I mentioned like agendas and minutes from meetings, but it's also, you know, public notices. If a, if a piece of property is foreclosed on, you're required by law to put that in the newspaper. So now the, the Pulse and other papers that follow your business model will be able to accept those things. And I think that is, you know, it's a pretty good profit area for newspapers, I think, to be able to publish those notices. I, yeah, so legal notices have always been important, and we were publishing them. So it's not like we were not publishing them, but there were certain, the city of Sturgeon Bay and the county of Door, where, you know, there were certain re- requirements that prevented us from competing with other newspapers for those legal notices. Well, and, and the reason you were able to print in these other areas already was because of a, a bill I did a, a couple sessions ago where I oh, that's right. I loosened it up a lot. Prior mm-hmm. to that, you couldn't print any. I think there were a couple that maybe did it anyway, even though it yes. wasn't required. They still put it in the polls because they wanted people to see those things. But that's kind of what I was talking about. Yeah. yeah is that certain municipalities do that anyway. Right. They think it's good use of their tax money to mm-hmm. help transparency and all that. But but right. they didn't legally have, you didn't count. They still, if they, mm-hmm. if they did that, they still had to put it in the advocate. Sure. So anyway, we loosened it up a lot a couple sessions ago. This time we basically removed all those. So you can you can do it anywhere in Door County now. Right. So that's what that did. And especially with the state of the newspaper industry. I mean, there are, you know, I have people contacting me from Algoma asking us and Kiwani asking us to actually do some coverage on their races that are coming up for the spring elections. And, you know, which they... They have no one really there to do that. And so they're contacting us, you know, so that we could cover that and which we cannot do. But it is just really amazing to me, the state of the news desertness up here. I mean, really, there's so little coverage of what is happening in the in this region. Yeah. And I mean, prior to these two laws that we passed, you know, the advocate was the only paper that qualified. Yes. And, you know, the advocate was bought up by Gannett. And, mm-hmm. and I was there during that. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And it's really a shell of what it used to be. That of You course. know, Gannett has bought up papers everywhere, all these small town papers. And then they, they get rid of all their staff. And so, you know, the, the advocate's not what it used to be. And the readership has dropped tremendously. Mm-hmm. So, so really, this law makes sense because now we're in the pulse that has a far wider readership than the advocate ever did. So, mm-hmm. so I think... 
you know, it, it's really mm-hmm. in the public's best interest to, to have it in a paper that people actually read. Sure. So that's really the, the purpose behind it. You know, don't mind doing you guys favors, but that yeah. wasn't really the purpose <laughs> behind it. It was it was really because we want to increase, you know, public access to to this information. Right. So that was really the, the reason behind it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love ending on a note like that where we're talking <laughs> about, you know, how good the Peninsula Pulse is, which <laughs> I also subscribe to that belief. But if there's nothing else that you wanted to say, Joel, or is there another bill that you want to highlight mm-hmm. or mention? or One other one real quickly. Okay. Um, it's just the room tax bill I should bring up. Okay. A- that it just made it much easier for our local governments to collect room tax from short-term rentals, Airbnb, VRBO, and that kind of thing. That's been a big issue across the state. And Door County has been a leader in that, that, that mm-hmm. we actually go around and we're active and we track people down and force them to pay. In most parts of the state, those establishments don't pay tax at all. And I don't, you know, I'm not a guy that wants us to pay a lot of tax, but nonetheless, if they're competing with hotels, they should have to pay room tax too. Sure. So, you know, we just want everybody to pay their fair share. So this bill... Again, it's one of those that was driven by local concerns, makes it a whole lot easier for, you know, for our local governments to collect these and make sure it goes to the right place because, you know, take a Sturgeon Bay address, a 54235 zip code, that covers, you know, at least half a dozen townships that yeah. have that same address. Jackson Port, Sevastopol. Right. So how do they, how does Airbnb, even if they're collecting it, know where to send that check? Mm-hmm. So this assures that the, it'll, it goes a long way towards assuring anyway, that it goes to the right place and that people are actually paying that. And if you see, you know, the room tax, the way it's gone up in our area, it, it's very important for our local governments to, to collect that money and to have it go to the right place. So right. I should bring that one up. So if I recollect that bill accurately, it was, it required Airbnbs or Verbo or any online company like that to have to produce reports on a, what, quarterly basis? Well, or? It, yeah, yeah. Basically, and if and if a local government has any reason to believe, because it doesn't provide a lot of specific information on where it came from, but if a local government has any reason to believe that it's not correct, then they can audit that, and then they have access to every address, how much they collected, and all okay. that kind of thing. And also, the issue was they didn't really know where these short-term rental properties were, right? Because they would just come in in a lump sum payment, and yeah. so then they would have to figure out where the addresses were so that they would know to send it to Sevastopol, the town of Sevastopol, versus the city of Sturgeon Bay. Yeah. So now does it clarify the addresses of where these short-term rental properties are? If you audit it, then you can get Only that. if you audit. Yeah. Okay. But, and, you know, there was this was one of those bills that there was a lot of arguing back and forth because sure. those short-term rental companies, right now they would just send a check. Sevastopol, here's your check. You have, just have to trust us that it's the right amount. Mm-hmm. There's no way of knowing anything else. So, and we had plenty of documentation that they weren't doing it right. Yeah. So now at least there's a mechanism where you can go back and check on that. Okay. And so now when they don't do it right, they can, then there's some recourse that right. you can and take. You can, yeah. You can track it down and make sure that it's the right amount paid. Prior to that, yeah, you had to trust them on faith. And we knew that, you know, the, in Door County, the, uh, the Tourism Zone Commission, they, you know, they track all this stuff and they had you know, they came in and testified. They did a fantastic job, but they had a binder several inches thick of all the instances where they knew the money was going to the wrong place or they weren't mm-hmm. collecting the right amount and all that. So to take those companies at their word when we know they're not doing it right, mm-hmm. now they can do that. So, you know, that was another bill that, again, it, most of the bills that I write, it's because somebody comes to me and says, look, there's a problem here, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, you do want to encourage people that when you see something where something in government's not working right, 
let us know and we'll look into it. And, you know, we don't always write a bill. It's not always necessary, but, but in something like that where, yeah, there's clearly a problem, then we get to work on that. Okay. All right. Well, I have been talking today with Representative Joel Kitchens, who represents District 1 in the Assembly, and that is part of Dora County. I am Deborah Fitzgerald, and I will talk with you again next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.